Well, good morning, everyone. It is a wonderful day to be together today to worship God, to sing His praises, to talk to Him in ways that we really don't deserve to, but we are privileged to by Jesus' work and His sacrifice for us, to sing songs of praise to God together. It's a wonderful day for that, and I'm excited to study with you a little bit more of God's Word from the book of Hebrews. So last week we covered kind of a lot of ground, or the week before, I guess. It was going through Hebrews, the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7. So we're going to touch back on chapter 7 because there's some things I think we need to drive home and clarify a little bit. And then we'll move on through a shorter chapter 8 this week. Uh, It only has 13 verses in Hebrews chapter 8. So we'll be spending most of our time there if you'd like to turn to the book of Hebrews. And uh, that song we just sang, Not a Step Will I Take Without Jesus, is the whole point of what this writer is trying to get uh, the Hebrew Christians to do, is to move forward in their pursuit of God, not apart from Jesus, but with Jesus' saving power and his work in them, and, uh, and, and to not leave him in the pursuit of God altogether. So in Hebrews chapter uh, 8, I think the, one of the verses... Uh, It's actually not in the book of Hebrews, but the verse that kind of sticks out to me in the study is this verse from Psalm 110, that your people will be volunteers in the day of your power. So we'll get around to that in just a minute. But let's take a look back from last week in the chapter 7 where we left off talking about this this mysterious man named Melchizedek. And uh, that is not a name that we use today. We talked about what that name means. It had a literal meaning, uh, king of righteousness. And, uh, and it has some connections to Jesus that we talked about from last time. So just to give us a little bit of a running start, in verse 14 we said, For it is evident that our Lord, speaking of Jesus, arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke concerning nothing, uh, spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. So that is one of the key ideas we learned from Melchizedek, is that basically he came from a different priesthood. And Melchizedek was was a representation of a priesthood that would not have an end, that would not have... uh, a finite nature in this life. That Jesus is like Melchizedek and that he will have an eternal priesthood uh, in describing Jesus. Verse 17, For he testifies, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So we talked about this last week, but we didn't look into that quotation. We talked about how in Genesis we learned about Melchizedek in that book. But there's actually another passage where this direct quote comes from that I would like to talk about for just a minute as we get started today. And that quotation comes from Psalm 110. So Psalm 110 is the other place this is referenced in the Old Testament. And there beginning in verse 1, the psalmist writes this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So I believe this is talking, you know, God the Father speaking to Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 3, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. 
The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So that's where that passage is pulled from, the fourth verse of this psalm. So I kind of, since we're here, I kind of wanted to take a look at this psalm, these first few verses, and uh, pull out some of the things surrounding the idea of Melchizedek here. So this is talking about Jesus and the, the power that he's going to embody and represent on the earth. And I love how it, it mentions this in verse 3. Your people, God's people. In the Old Testament, God's people were a nation, a physical lineage of people who lived in one area and who worshipped together and had their own city. Okay, so he's saying though, your people, God's people, shall be volunteers in the day of your power. Now, I believe this day of your power is, can mean a couple important things. Number one, God's greatest power on the earth, I believe, was enacted by setting up his church through the work of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus came and he set up God's kingdom come with power, I believe that that is Jesus' uh, beginning of the church and the, the Christian age when God's power uh, was represented through Jesus and, uh, and his church and his kingdom. Now, I also think it, it's connected to the, the preceding phrase that, the, that in the day of God's power, the time in which God's power on the earth is maybe the strongest or the most evident or the most obvious or real is in the day when God's people are volunteers. Now, if you think about in the Old Testament, there's a sense in which they were volunteers. There were voluntary offerings, voluntary service they would do. But in some senses, they were just kind of born into a nation. The beautiful part of the Christian age is we're not made to do this. It's not because we were um, part of some national system that teaches us in our schools how to serve God and that implements sacrifices between recess and second class. We're not, that's not the way it is in our schools. That's not the way the government works here like it might have in the Israelite nation. Here today, if you are going to be a Christian, if you are going to serve God, and if you are going to be one of His people, it's because you're a volunteer. And that is a powerful message of free will and God's power in the world because of free will. Because when God's work is greatest... You know, in the Old Testament, God did a wonderful, amazing works where he would set a mountain on fire to symbolize and express his presence. Or he would part a sea and congeal it like jello. He did these amazing things, healing people. But I believe that the day of God's power is maybe the most powerful in the sense that it could turn somebody from their own way to do God's will. To have a sacrifice and a plan that is so powerful that it takes stubborn, selfish, unrighteous people like you and me. And it turns us into people who will say, God, I will do anything for you. That is God's greatest power, I believe, on display in this world. To turn free people into willing servants. So God's people will be volunteers in the day of His power, in the beauties of holiness... From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. That phrase confused me. So there's this, this psalmist is using poetic language. And uh, I had to consult some commentaries to see what it might have meant. This from the womb of the morning. A little bit confusing to me. So one of the commentaries I read said this. 
The figure is so beautiful that words cannot explain it. You have only to stand early one morning when the sun is beginning to shoot its rays of light up into the sky and look at the fields all glistening with dew and say, whence came all these? Or where did, where did this dew come from? Where did this, this sparkling water come from? The answer is they came from the womb of the morning. So when you find the multitudes are saved and you see them coming so mysteriously, so gently, so divinely, and yet so numerously, like that dew, you can only compare them to the dew of the morning. You say, whence came these? Or where did these people come from who are being saved? And the answer is, they have come from the womb of the morning. So, that was more than I could come up with on my own. You take it for what it's worth. So, the description of being God's people Coming like the womb of the morning, being the dew of the youth of God's power. Another important, another important point to notice is this idea of youth and power. If someone were to talk about power, it's from a perspective, a physical power. It's usually a youthful thing. You don't describe the human uh, power by old age, typically. It's, 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 a, it's a youthful, bolstered strength that's uh, embodied here this way, with this idea of the youth. So he's saying you have the dew. That word dew is, is often uh, symbolizing freshness. So when it's talking about Jesus' power on the earth in this day, it, he has a freshness and a youthfulness with his strength on the earth. Even though his plan has been going for a long time, Jesus' plan might be 2,000 years old, but he's not a 2,000-year-old uh, weak, uh, weak person. Jesus' power is great today. It is fresh, and he has people coming just like the dew of the morning. It's like, how did these people get here? How, is, how are God's people still coming to serve him? You know, you might think without, without a draft where everyone is required to enter the service, this kingdom is going to be lacking people, right? If God doesn't make people serve him, this kingdom is going to be shorthanded. And the beauty of this passage, the dew of the morning, is look out around here. Look at this congregation. There are people who God is working in and saving today that we can't even explain it, like the dew of the morning. Take that for what it's worth. I thought it was interesting and uh, at least poetic from, from the psalm. So Jesus' power is going to be strong on the earth because people are volunteers today. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so just to kind of put a bookend on chapter 7 and Melchizedek, I don't think he, Melchizedek, is confusing. I think when people try to, and when I try to look beyond what the scriptures say and figure out about this Melchizedek, that's when it gets confusing. It's a pretty simple idea. The whole point of Melchizedek is that Jesus came from a different lineage, a different priesthood that will be eternal, and, and that stretches beyond the bounds of even the finite understanding that they would have had of Jewish leadership. So the Jewish leadership is what they were comfortable with, what they knew, and, and Jesus is so far beyond that that it's a little bit strange for them, but nonetheless, Jesus, that expresses Jesus' power that much more. He's not from some earthly lineage, and that expresses Jesus' power. 
Okay. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Okay. So now we are in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. There it says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That phrase, uh, right hand of the throne, the right hand is a, is a place of respect and honor and power. And it's, it's not someone who is at the foot he is at the right hand of God and God's power. And notice that he's seated. You know, when, when someone has a completed work, it's like that is symbolized by sitting down and taking, uh, taking rest, taking completion in that work. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. We know that Jesus had to stand up when he uh, was showing respect for uh, Stephen when he was being martyred, when he was being killed. But Jesus' place is at a place of finished work at the powerful right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Speaking of God and his throne room. Verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. So in the Old Testament they had this tabernacle, right? Where you had your sacrifices, sacrifices where you had your place of washing. Then you would enter the holy place where there was the candlesticks and the showbread. And where you had then in the most holy place... The Ark of the Covenant and, uh, and the symbols there. That was the tabernacle of the Old Testament. We've studied about that recently. He said Jesus didn't just go in here like the priest did. And he didn't even go in the holy place. Or he didn't even go into the most holy place of the tabernacle that men built. But he is in the true tabernacle. In heaven with God. The true place where God dwells. Jesus goes beyond any of these Old Testament ideas. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. So if Jesus is going to be our priest, the priest's job was to offer sacrifices and gifts to God on behalf of the people. Okay? So this Jesus should have something to offer. What does he have to offer? Well, Let's consider the, the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings to get a little bit of context for what the Jews might have understood here. They had five main types of offerings in the Old Testament. There's a lot of types within these, and so it can get kind of complicated and, and a little bit muddy for us who are trying to understand this later. But there are five main types. The first main type is the burnt livestock offering, the burnt offering. And this is in Leviticus chapter 1. The first seven chapters line out these main five uh, offerings. And the first chapter tells us that this burnt livestock offering is an offering of atonement. And I've just kind of given some notes here to as something to think about. This is not an exhaustive study. But that was an offering of substitution. It was a male without blemish. It was a free will offering. So that person who, one of the Israelites who brought that offering to, uh, to the tabernacle, it was of their free will. It was laid at the door of the tabernacle. So it gives specific instructions where it was brought. And then when he was going to sacrifice this animal, he had 
to lay his hand on the head of the animal. Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. And that was to transfer, symbolically, to transfer the guilt as the offerer killed that animal. Okay, so it was like this idea that man had sin and he had atonement that needed to happen for his sins. And so he would put his hand on the head of the animal as to symbolically transfer the sins to that animal. Okay? And it was killed by the offerers, not the priests. So the person bringing the sacrifice was the one who did the killing. Maybe the slitting of the throat of this animal. And I'll just kind of make some side notes here. It's fascinating when we consider Jesus, who was both the priest and the sacrifice. That Jesus was killed at the hands of the Jew and Gentiles who laid hands on him. So when they came to take Jesus, they laid their hands on the sacrifice. Almost a picture of transferring guilt to Jesus as they were going to crucify him for their sins. They laid hands on him. And similar to this, this offering of atonement, Jesus brought himself as a free will offering. And he laid his life down. When, Je when they came to get Jesus, he said, you're not coming to take me. I could stop you basically if I wanted to, but I am laying my life down. To be very clear, this is a free will offering from himself. And others laid hands on him. Okay, this second type of offering was a grain offering. And this is in Leviticus chapter 2. This offering was a type of, was a kind of memorial offering. It was finely beaten, good quality flour. So as you'll see with their sacrifices, it was important that they brought things that were not just the leftovers or the junk. They brought the best quality. If it was flour, the finest, most closely ground flour, it was to be an unleavened sacrifice offered with oil and frankincense. And as we consider Jesus, he is the sacrifice of the bread of life. So parallels all throughout these, these, uh, these sacrifices. The third type of sacrifice was a peace offering. And we learned that in chapter 3. That that sacrifice was to be a male or female. The offer again kills this one. The blood would be poured outside the tabernacle. And the interesting thing about this one to me is that when they brought this sacrifice, part of it was eaten by the offerer, the individual bringing the offering. Part of it was eaten by the priests. And another part was sacrificed to God. So this peace offering was a, com was a combining of all the parties involved to offer an offering of peace and kind of a celebration of peace in this relationship with God. It offered praise and not necessarily confession like some of the other offerings did. And as we read in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you are called in one body and be thankful. Okay, type number four was a sin offering. So the first three, it seems, were more of fellowship offerings. But now we're getting into the last two, um, which kind of changed the tone a little bit. The fourth is a sin offering. In chapter four and five, it talks about how unintentional sins uh, were some covered in these, in these sin offerings. And some were group sins. So if the people as a whole sin, they might do an offering like this. And uh, it was to be a bull without blemish. As you see all of these uh, priests here putting their hands on, uh, on this animal. So as we see this idea come up a lot with sacrifices, it's to be something without blemish. 
Something without fault, something that did nothing to, des- to deserve of it, and something that wasn't just worth being thrown away. These are the best. And finally, the fifth offering was a guilt, or sometimes called a trespass offering. So in chapter 5 and 6, this trespass offering was not made for a group of people. It was made for one person. And the difference between, the main difference between this offering and any other kind is this offering kind of involves some kind of restitution. This one involved kind of a paying back for something you might have done wrong. So there, might, there could be a payment associated with it. So with some of these sin offerings in the, in the trespass, it's interesting also that the priests would consume part of these offerings. This is tied in with ideas of Jesus being the priest who took on the burdens and the sins. So many ideas here that I don't have uh, the level of knowledge necessarily to filter through all of it. But on this fifth type of offering, if you read Isaiah chapter 53 talking about the sins or the, the, the suffering Jesus would go through, it says there that Jesus was going to be one who would bear their iniquities. He was the only one to bear guilt for many people. In the Old Testament, like I had said, that guilt offering was only offered for one person. But Jesus, it says in Isaiah 53, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Right here. For he shall bear their iniquities. This is exact language that is tied to the way they describe the sacrifices in Leviticus. Jesus was the guilt. He was the iniquity bearer. He is that guilt or that trespass offering It's very direct correlating language used here between the Leviticus passage and Jesus being the one who would bear that. He is the guilt offering for us. Okay. So this idea of sacrificing animals never really hit that hard for me. I don't know about you. But since we've never done it, since we've never seen it, since we've never really felt what it feels to do that, I never really hit home with me until I was doing this study and I started to think about the process that it took for them to prepare this and how that offer would bring that sacrifice to the tabernacle. He would bring that sacrifice to the tabernacle and lay it there. And it was often a kind of innocent animal. You notice that the Bible talks about the lamb being sacrificed and Jesus being the lamb of the world. Slain for our sins. When you think about this idea of someone bringing an innocent animal to the tabernacle to sacrifice. To have his knife there with him. To do the job himself. That really hit with me this time reading through this. You know, because I grew up hunting and fishing. And so killing an animal for, for food really didn't do much to me. I, I was fine with it. I grew up doing it. I was used to it. But I know not everyone here is that way. Not everyone here could kill an animal. And uh, not everyone is, could even imagine doing that. But for me, it, it's different. Killing for food versus something like they were about to do. Because when I kill for food, a lot of times it, was, it served a purpose. They would eat these. So there's a purpose even for food for them, for the priests. But it was different in that this animal, it was no game prey. Even hunters today have this kind of code that you don't kill an animal 
when it's just sitting there or sleeping or bedded down or defenseless. God made this sacrifice system to show them how wrong it should feel. Imagine if you took a lamb up to the tabernacle and you set it on that altar and you pull out your knife you brought with you. And I don't want to be graphic, but I think this is graphic. And I think to understand the weight of it, we have to understand that. And you take that knife and you plunge into the throat of that poor, helpless animal. Think about what that would feel like. It's not a game animal. It's not something that was, had a defense. It's not something that had a reason to even be there. It was a, it was a livestock that you had raised. Imagine the feeling of that, of this isn't right. Because when, when that person would lay their hand on that sacrifice, that lamb that had no fight in him, that was intended to feel wrong. Because God wanted us to see that it took life blood. It took life to remove the death that our sin had entered into the world. It took a lifeblood to sacrifice for that sin, for that atonement that needed to happen. And so as I think about the idea of killing something innocent, it felt really wrong to think about it this time. To think about doing something to that animal for what I did. So when, when I read John chapter 1, verse 29, and it says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which comes to take this away the sin of the world. That feels wrong from a physical animal standpoint, more than ever now. So to picture that being said about Jesus feels devastatingly wrong. It feels sickening to me to think about laying a hand even on an innocent animal and slitting its throat for something I did. It should not have happened. But by God's grace, it did. And through these sacrifices, we can see that Jesus is our atonement offering. He is the bread of life. He is our peace offering. He is our sin offering. And He is our trespass offering in His innocence. And it's sad to me, considering all of this, the modern Jews today, there are still uh, Orthodox Jews, they call them, that, that claim to practice Judaism. They don't believe Jesus was the, their Messiah. And that is so sad to me because even they don't sacrifice anymore. When their temple was destroyed, they now say we don't have a fit place to sacrifice. But it's no accident. The old law has been abolished. And so today on the Day of Atonement, what Jews do today? They do something pretty similar to what Christians do. They do good deeds and they pray. And it's sad because really they're practicing just a shadow of a shadow. The old law was a shadow of Jesus to come. And so they're practicing not even the old law. They're not even doing it. They're just practicing a shadow in trying to hold up the Day of Atonement and things like that. But they don't even realize. And I feel bad for them. They don't even realize what they're doing. Because Jesus came to not be a shadow of a shadow. He came to be the substance of the sacrifices that they had been performing for so many years. And I've been doing for so long. Jesus is the substance. Verse 3. 
For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. Verse 5. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant. That word mediator, if you have an argument between siblings, uh, the person who, sometimes there's a third sibling to, uh, to mediate between the two and say, Hey guys, stop, break it up. You know, that's, that's a, an argument mediator. But Jesus, in a different sense, is a mediator in that he's going between us and God and pleading on our behalf to God to have mercy and to forgive us. So Jesus is that mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says this, and he, this is where the quotation of Jeremiah chapter 31 starts. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. goes on to say, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. We're still in that quotation from, from Jeremiah. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. So, this is the transition that's going to happen. This is prophesied long ago that God will put his laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And Jesus, when he came and delivered his first kind of inaugural message on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus came saying things like, you've heard this, you know, do not kill, do not, do not commit adultery. But even if you think about those things in your heart, and you develop that kind of inward person. That's sin. He said, I'm going to write my laws on their minds and on their hearts. And it's not going to just be written on the tablets of stone, where they would come together and read them and perform the, the sacrifices and the rituals. He said, I'm going to write it on their hearts and change them from the inside. That, and we, I also think of the law of liberty referenced in Galatians. Galatians 5 verse 16 says, I say then, walk in the Spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. This idea of changing from the inside is a very New Testament idea uh, and that's represented especially in Galatians. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, and revelries, and the like. This is all the works of the flesh, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But... This is the inside-out change. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. 
And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires from the inside out. Just the passions that we, that we seek in life change when we become true Christians, converted Christians. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He said, I'm going to write my laws on their minds and on their hearts. It's not just going to be a list of do's and don'ts. It's going to be something that they walk in the Spirit of God and walk in His powerful, changing qualities from the inside out. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I love that line. God claiming ownership of us. If you hear a parent who's proud of their child talk about, that's, that's my boy, that's, that's my girl right there, she's... She's my child, or that's my child right there. God does that with us. I'm going to be that, that Christian's God. I'm going to be, insert your name, I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people. God says that about you today. And he wants to take ownership of you, and he is proud of you to be his child. He is proud to be your father. One quote said, the best way to make a man keep a law is to make him love the lawgiver. Now, I'm not a lawgiver, but I'm a teacher. And since I've developed relationships with my students, they, a lot of them will probably pretty much do anything for me and will defend me in a lot of situations. And that's the way God wants us to see him and that we have a relationship with him that we will do anything for him, that we will listen to him if that's what it takes when we need some change. We must love the lawgiver, and that will make it so much easier to understand obeying his law. Continuing on that quotation from Jeremiah still. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none of them his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. God's power in saving through His mercy and His righteousness is going to make people search for Him. It says that it's going to be from the least to the greatest. When Jesus came, He said, If they're not going to hear me, go into the highways and the byways. Invite anyone who will come and feast on the bread of life and serve me. Now, this phrase, it says here, no one's going to say, know the Lord, and teach them about each other. Are we really not going to, no one's going to need to teach each other about the Bible? Well, we know that's not true because passages like Romans tell us, you know, how are they going to hear if they don't have a preacher, and how will they uh, preach unless they're sent? So we need to have people who are teaching God's word. It's not what this is saying. I believe what it's saying is they won't necessarily have to have someone make them and teach them from a young age all the time. That God's great work in His mercy and forgiveness of sins will drive them to where they don't have to have somebody like teach them this is what you need to do, but they will come willingly to serve and to lay down their lives. The mercy driving it will call people to the message. And also because God's people will also no longer be a physical nation where they will be taught in their systems and all those things like uh, like maybe they would have in Judea, in, uh, during Judaism. The world, in addition, the word will be accessible as opposed to the tablets possessed and taught by only a few. 
today, we have access to God's word freely. And so it's not like someone has to teach another through oral tradition, through oral priestly teaching. We can all study God's word. We don't necessarily have to have somebody always tell us, this is what you are due, I'm delivering you this from God to you. We can all read the word. Also, the content will be internally based in command and ritual. So this is represented in the concluded work of Jesus rather than continual sacrifice. I think this is represented well in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 17, I'll skip down to verse 26. Paul is talking to the the people at the Areopagus who were gathered to hear the message of the gospel. These were actually Gentiles. But it says, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. I think this this speech by Paul in the Areopagus sums up well this gospel message. That his will is that people will come and seek him and find him. And that they won't have to just be taught in a religious government how to do everything. That these people will flock to God to serve him willingly. In our last verse in Hebrews chapter 8, in that he says, A new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So this is speaking of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is obsolete. What that means is it's no longer, um, no longer relevant necessarily for current following. The New Covenant is what took its place and fulfilled the Old Testament and its commandments and its ordinances. But the Old Law was not pointless. In Galatians chapter 3 We read, what purpose then does the law serve, this old law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. We learned that was Jesus. Now a mediator does not mediate from one only, but God is one. Is then the law against the promises of God? Certainly not, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. This phrase, he has confined all, or the scripture confining all under sin, is that saying it was a trap? Setting up the Old Testament was a trap? That, ha, now you're guilty. No. It just sets clear parameters and definitions that say, because of this law, it's clear to see that, hey, you're all confined under sin. There, it, it clarifies what God means about who is under sin and who is lost in sin. It's not some trap. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. 
But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So, as I understand it, a tutor wasn't just someone you go to for a little math homework help. A tutor was someone who was kind of like an official mentor. They would train you day after day as kind of a, prepa- as a, as a preparer for a great work that you'll do later in life. When you're young, you need a tutor in this sense for someone to teach them until they're ready to take on responsibility, maybe a career or religious uh, work on their own. And the Old Testament is saying, was that tutor? Because imagine if Jesus had come and they said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which comes to take away the sin of the world. And you didn't have the Old Testament? They would have said, Behold, who comes to take care of what? The, the Lamb of what? The Old Testament set up a pattern to where they could see, Hey, I'm confined under sin. It helped them see that, Hey, this is what sacrifice is needed for my sins. So that when the Lamb of God comes, that tutor could pass them off to Jesus and say, they are ready. They're ready to understand why it's so important that they needed me, that they needed God, that they needed Jesus' saving blood. So the Old Testament was that tutor to show these early Christians of Judaism and to show us today even what it was really requiring of people to have a relationship with God. And to have his sins atoned for in their spiritual walk. A tutor you might consider, I don't know if this is a bad example, but Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. It was someone who brought them and prepared them for a work. Take it or leave it. So we're going to stop there today at Hebrews chapter 8. And uh, I'm thankful today that we have a great high priest and a great sacrifice. Who eliminated the need for sacrifices to continue. I'm so thankful that we don't have to do all those sacrifices of innocent animals anymore. And frankly, that nobody does it. The, uh, the Jews themselves don't even do it today. And we can praise God for His work in that. And today, if you have not contacted that saving blood, how could you not? The love of Christ compels us through these passages like we've seen that God wants you to volunteer for His service because of His great work for you. And he wants to voluntarily bring you into his kingdom so that you would reap the benefits that we've talked about today. Of having your sins forgiven and having peace with God and with one another as we worship God. If you haven't been added to that kingdom, you can start by hearing the word like we've talked about today. Believing on that word. Repenting and changing your life. Saying, you know, you know what? I'm going to submit my will and go to God's will. Because I believe in him. And Confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of your sins. You can do that today. Um, We're happy to take care of that. Or if you would like the prayers of the church today, that's why we're here. We're we're happy to pray one for another uh, at this time or take care of one one of either of these things while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.